At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. morning, y'all. How are we all doing this morning? Awesome to be with y'all today. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Phil Danford. Um, I'm the worship director here at Gospel Community Church, and I'm an elder candidate. And it is my honor to open up God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Before we get into it, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you hungry and thirsty for your word. God, we come to you this morning to hear from you. God, as we open up a text like this, Lord, a difficult text, uh, one, that, one that isn't easy to see uh, the through line through this text, God, I pray that uh, you would send your spirit, God, to reveal yourself today. God, may we be changed people. God, may you be heavy on our hearts and on our minds today. God, would you overcome my failings and my shortcomings, God, and may your word, your cross, and your gospel reign supreme in this house today. Your holy name, amen. Okay, well, I have a confession to make this morning. Can I make a confession? Are we in the trust tree? (laughs) We're just going to keep it between us, okay? Um, I am a hopelessly early person. I am a hopelessly early person. I suffer from chronic earliness, and incidentally, my wife does too. We're equally yoked. Um, Even when we try to be on time at an event, we always end up early. We, we have this discussion almost every single time. Let's, let's say, well, we can't leave now. We'll be the first people there. So even when we leave late, we are still the first people at every single event. So then we got to circle around the block or something like that and kill time. Is that you this morning? Are you a hopelessly early type of person? Okay. All right. Then we know who you are. You're the other type of person in this room. You are the hopelessly late type of person. Don't play. Y'all know who you are. You're the type of person that no matter how hard you try, you're going to be late. No matter how, how hard you try to set alarm clocks, you know you're going to be 30 minutes late. You're that kind of person where if the party starts at 12, we're going to tell you it starts at 1130, so you might be there on time. All right, where we find ourselves in the text today, the disciples and the Jewish people are hopelessly early. They, they suffer from chronic earliness. See, they've been traveling with Jesus this whole time, and they've been getting more and more hyped and more and more excited about Jesus revealing himself as Messiah. See, they're more and more convinced that he is, in fact, the Messiah, and they want him to establish his earthly kingdom now. They're expecting the earthly kingdom to come now. So, uh, as they've been traveling with him on their way to Jerusalem, they've been waiting for this day. They've been waiting for this day their entire life. Ever since they were old enough to speak, they've been told about the coming Messiah. They've been told that he would come to establish the kingdom of God and that it would last forever. So every Passover, the Jews would leave one seat open at the table. Y'all remember this? They would leave one seat open at the table for the prophet Elijah to come back. And they would leave a full cup of wine for him because that would signal the coming of the Messiah. The disciples were expecting the Messiah to come and establish his earthly kingdom now. And let's think about how things are going for the Jewish people at this point in our story. So right now, they're under the occupation of their pagan Roman overlords. They're taxing them to the hilt. 
They have robbed them of their independence and they have shamed them among the nations. And how about their rulers? They're puppet kings, right? Remember the Herods? They have puppet kings who don't care about God. They abuse God's people and then they tax them even more on top of the Roman government and they imprison anybody who speaks out. These people woke up every single morning with a visceral, prevalent desire to see the kingdom come, and they wanted it now. Every morning they would cry, come, Lord, come, and may, may it be today, Lord. I'm curious, do we ever do that? In 2023, do you, do you ever wake up and say, can today be the day, God? You ever hear that alarm clock ring and you say, Jesus, please come back today. If we're in him and we know that we'll be spending eternity with him. Some days don't we say, Lord, this world stinks. This world stinks. Everybody's horrible to each other. Our political leaders are self-serving shells of human beings. Am I right? People are getting crazier by the minute. Or maybe it's just me. People are getting crazier by the minute. We're debating on what a man and a woman is. We're constantly having to watch our children like hawks because the world is trying to indoctrinate them. And we're being taxed to the hilt too, aren't we? We're being taxed for things that we know are sinful. We are just like the disciples. We're praying, Maranatha, come, Lord, come. May it be today. We are weary of being in a sin-torn world. We are all weary of being in a sin-torn world. But just like the disciples were expecting the kingdom to come now, and just like us who are weary of being in a sin-torn world, the Lord shows us, there is a purpose in our waiting. There is a purpose in our waiting. See, we're, we're 2,000 years removed from those disciples, but that means we're 2,000 years closer to the coming of the Messiah. Amen. What are we supposed to do while we wait? What are we supposed to do while we wait? What's our purpose here waiting for the Messiah to come? Is the Lord punishing us? Is that what this is? Or has he given us a purpose and a mission for our waiting? There's a reason we are waiting. And that brings us to the main point of the text today. So as we go through this text, this will be our through line. If you don't remember anything else for the day, remember this. Invest in the kingdom, the Lord is returning. Invest in the kingdom, the Lord is returning. This will be the drumbeat we hear through this entire text. Invest in the kingdom, the Lord is returning. So let's go through our outline. This is the text and the journey that we're taking today. Starting in verse 11, we will look at the master leaves. And then in verse 13, we'll go to the master entrusts. Then we will look at the master rewards. And then finally, we will look at the master punishes. Okay, so for those of us that are weary of living in a sin-torn world, and it seems like there's no point in us being here, we know the end of the story, right? Jesus offers us purpose. He offers us meaning and hope in this parable. Invest in the kingdom and see the Lord use it for unimaginable good. Are right, we ready? Ready. I'm excited to get into this text. All right, so let's start with the master leaves, starting in verse 11. And as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, so y'all remember last week, we talked about wee little Zacchaeus and Jericho. So Jericho is not that far from Jerusalem. 
And this is the progression they've been making. They're going, going from Jericho to Jerusalem. And Jesus has had his face set like flint on Jerusalem. This was the goal. This was the end point of the journey all along. So if you know anything about the topography on the path from Jericho to Jerusalem, there is a hill in Bethany that you have to crest before you can get to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is obscured by this hill of Bethany, but once you crest the hill of Bethany, you see Jerusalem displayed in all its glory in the valley. This is where they're headed. So as they're getting near to Jerusalem, the disciples are expecting to see Jesus show himself as the Messiah and the political savior of Israel. This was their expectation. They thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately as soon as they get there to Jerusalem. They knew that Jerusalem was the end of the journey. They knew that this was the goal they had all been working towards. Also, we know in chapters coming, the later chapters, that they're about to enter into the Passover feast. So the, the Jewish historian Josephus said that as many as 2 million pilgrims would be in Jerusalem during the Passover feast. So they're like, if it's going to happen, it's happening now. Let's go. The disciples were putting their own expectation on Jesus. They already knew what they wanted him to be and what they wanted him to do for them. It doesn't matter that Jesus told them exactly what he was going to do, not even a chapter ago. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember when he outlined, this is exactly what I'm going to do. Let's look back at it. In, in uh, chapter 18, verse 31, he said, taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. He told them everything that was going to happen. He said, look, y'all, I'm about to die. I'm about to, to uh, rise on the third day. And still they said, okay, how about this political kingdom? Isn't that nuts? Isn't that crazy? He can tell them everything that's going to happen, and yet they still don't get it. Are they that dense? We wouldn't be that dense, though, would we? We're smarter than that, aren't we? Okay. All right. If you're taking notes, when we place expectations on Jesus that aren't based on who he says he is, it blinds us to the beauty of who he actually is. That's a mouthful. I'm going to say it again. When we place expectations on Jesus that aren't based in who he says he is, it blinds us to the beauty of who he actually is. So let me ask you in this, in this room this morning, what expectations have you put on Jesus? What expectations have you put on him? Is he supposed to make you happy? Is he supposed to be giving you what you want? Should he be making you successful? Or should he be making your life comfortable? Like, Jesus, I don't want any of the hard stuff. Jesus, you're supposed to take that away. Make my life comfy. Should he be making all your dreams come true? Jesus, we discussed this. That's the goal I want. What are we doing going this way? When we place expectations on Jesus that aren't based in who he says he is, it blinds us to who he actually is. So what do we do when we realize what he's actually called us to do? to die to ourselves, to die to ourselves so that we can be made alive in him. Okay, so because the disciples were expecting to enter the kingdom of, or to enter Jerusalem and that the kingdom was coming now, he goes into this parable. He knows the heart of his disciples. 
He already knows their heart. He knows where they're at. And out of love and grace and mercy, he tells them this parable. He wanted to teach them how to conduct themselves in his absence. So then he starts this parable. Okay, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Okay, so this, this should sound familiar to us. This is no doubt an allusion to himself. A nobleman goes into a far country and to receive a kingdom and then return. So Jesus must leave, must ascend, and then he will return to establish his kingdom. So many of Jesus' parables are hypothetical, but they are common to all men. They're hypothetical in nature, but they are common to all men. So we can, we can all imagine a father with two sons, and then one of the sons scurries off with his inheritance, right? That might not, not have actually happened, but we can, all imagine, we can all imagine that. That's common to all men. Or we can imagine somebody who's sowing seeds on a trail, and they take root in different spots, right? It's hypothetical, but it's common to all men. However, this parable that we're about to go through is particularly familiar to the disciples and the Jews. It's particularly familiar because this exact thing happened to them not long ago. Everything that's written out in this parable happened to them in real life not long ago. So Jesus is simultaneously comparing himself to the nobleman, but he's also bringing up a real-life event that they would all know about. This is a real-life event that they would have all had in their recent memory. So this parable, it's effective in two different ways. So one, it's effective in the principle of the parable, right? When we go through it, we'll, we'll see the meaning of it. And we'll see the effectiveness of it. But it's also effective because there is deep emotional ties to this story because it actually happened to the Jewish people. So I debated on whether, whether or not to go through this rabbit trail because I didn't want to get us off course, but I think it's worthwhile. Do can we go on a rabbit trail real quick? Okay, well, hang, hang together. We're going to make it. We're going to go on a rabbit trail, and we'll come right back. And I think it's important because I want us to see the context. I want us to see what the disciples and the Jewish people would be feeling in this moment as they enter into Jerusalem. So where are my history nerds at? History nerds? All right, history nerds, unite. Here we go. <laughs> Herod the Great was the king of Israel. He named himself the Great. He was not that great. But that was the name he made for himself, Herod the Great. He ruled as king of the Jews under Roman authority for 33 years. And when he died, he left his kingdom to his children. So the, the area of Judea and Samaria, where Jerusalem was, he left to his son, Herod Archelaus. And he was set to rule over. Now, Israel at this time, we know, was under Roman occupation. right? They, were, they, were, they had Roman overlords. The Roman Empire at this point span from northern Europe all the way in modern-day England all the way down to Saudi Arabia. Like, ridiculous, huge empire. No way that they could possibly maintain and, and, and govern this entire place. So, because they're very smart, they let the local areas keep their kings and keep their customs and keep their traditions. All they had to do was bow the knee to Rome and then pay a bunch of taxes, obviously. But all they had to do was bow the knee to Rome and then submit to Rome. Okay, so Herod Archelaus, he's left this kingdom. He's supposed to take it over, but he has to go to Caesar to get his blessing. Before he can be officially made king, he has to go to Caesar and get his blessing. So that's what he does. He scurries up to Rome to, to get his blessing. Meanwhile, the Jewish people send a delegation ahead of him. 
They go before him and they go to Caesar and they say, Caesar, please don't make this man king. He is cruel. He is evil. We don't want him as king. He's a wicked king. And Caesar actually listens. So Herod Archelaus gets there and he says, can I, can I have this kingdom? He says, no, your people hate you. Your people don't want you as king. Instead, you will be an ethnarch. Everybody say ethnarch. Yeah. It's a funny sounding word that only means uh, an ethnic monarch, not a king. You will have the power of king, but you will not have the title of king until you earn it. You must earn your people's favor in being king. Well, as history has it, he will never earn the title of king because when he gets home, the Jewish people will riot and he will have 3,000 slaughtered in the temple. He will slaughter 3,000 Jews in the temple and he will cancel Passover. So I say all this to say, this is recent in the disciples' memory. This is 20 years ago. This is 20 years before this story. This is recent in their memory. They had a visceral hate for their Roman occupiers and their puppet kings. So as they climb this hill of Bethany and they finally see Jerusalem displayed before them, the anticipation and the expectation could not be higher. It was sky high. They were expecting to be finally free, finally free for the first time in their lives, finally free of these Roman overlords. So Jesus in his love goes into this parable. He knows the heart of his people. And then that drumbeat keeps going. Invest in the kingdom. The Lord is returning. Invest in the kingdom. All right, let's move to our next section. In verse 13, the master entrusts. Okay. So continuing in his parable in verse 13, he says, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. Okay, a mina was a Greek monetary unit. It was worth 100 denarii, or about three months' wages for an average worker. So not a fortune, not like he hit the Powerball or anything like that, but, I mean, three months' wages. I wouldn't shake a stick at three months' wages. Um, so each of the ten servants was given one mina, not ten minas. The only reason I wrote that is because I messed that up for a long time. So y'all might be faster than me, but uh, they were each given one mina. And his command was, do business until I come. So while the master was away receiving his kingdom, the servants were expected to do business, to use the resource that the master gave them and use it to the utmost. So if you know your Bible well, this is really familiar to the parable of the talents. Y'all remember that one in Matthew? The only difference is the master gives different amounts in the parable of the talents. So here he's given the same amount. In the parable of the talents, he gives one, three, one, five, one, one, something like that. And I believe it gets to the heart of the matter. This is less about the gifting and more about faithfulness. It's less about gifting. We're all given different measures of gifting. Some of us are better at some things. Some of us are better at others. This is more about faithfulness, meaning we are all given the same thing, the gospel, right? This is all about faithfulness. If you're taking notes, everything the Lord entrusts you with is meant to be leveraged for the kingdom. Everything the Lord entrusts you with is meant to be leveraged for the kingdom. Everything? Yes, everything. So the car you drive, the home you have, the job you have, the friends you have, the influence you have, is meant to be leveraged for the kingdom. They're not ends in and of themselves. So I like my house. I sleep in it. I keep my stuff in it. It's a great house. But it's not an end of itself. The house should be used for gospel work, for gospel mission. 
My truck is a great truck. I love my truck. But it's not an end in and of itself. My truck is given to me to be used for gospel mission. It should be taking me to, to be a, about my father's business, right? So the things that the Lord has entrusted you with are meant to be leveraged for the kingdom. All right, let's pick up in verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, his citizens hated him. These were citizens of the noblemen. They lived in the area that he ruled. They weren't the servants, right? He first he called his trusted servants, gave them the minas. They weren't them. These were citizens that just so happened to live in the area that he ruled. So now we're introduced to the third group in our story. We've got the noblemen, we've got his servants, and then we've got these pesky citizens. So these people were citizens of his kingdom, whether they liked it or not, except he was not in their hearts and in their lives. Okay, so uh, an idea that we've been talking about for months now is the kingdom of God. We, that's, a, that's a refrain that we go to almost every week, the kingdom of God. So let's throw out a working definition of this just so we know where we're at. The kingdom of God is wherever Jesus is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his believers. When it is wherever Jesus is ruling and reigning in the hearts of his believers. So these people were citizens under the king's rule, but they weren't in the kingdom. You get that? They're citizens in the area that he lived, but they weren't in the kingdom because he wasn't their king. They wanted their own rulers. They wanted to be their own king. They did not want this man as king. So I wonder, how many people are citizens under the Lord's rule, but not members of his kingdom? Citizens under the Lord's rule, but not members of his kingdom. These are people that know of Jesus, people that think he's a good teacher, people that think he's a good role model, but when asked to die to themselves and bow their knee to Jesus, they respond just like the citizens. We do not want this man as king, right? Jesus is my homeboy until I have to sacrifice for him, until I have to bow the knee to him. And I'm not talking about other people outside these walls. I'm talking about us. I'm talking about people that have grown up in the church, that have known of Jesus their entire life, but if he's not ruling and reigning in their hearts, are they citizens? Are they members of the kingdom? This is something we should be evaluating in our hearts regularly. Is Jesus ruling and reigning in my heart right now? Is Jesus the king over my life? Have I submitted everything to Jesus? Or am I still trying to be my own king? Okay. So Jesus has set the stage. So all the players have been introduced. We've got the master, the servant, and the citizens. The master has left to secure his kingdom. And while he's away, he entrusts the servants to be about their, his, their master's business. And now he's going to return and see what they've done. And then we hear the refrain that we hear all throughout this text. Invest in the kingdom. The Lord is returning. Okay. Our next section, the master re rewards. Starting at verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained in doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And then he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. 
And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. All right, so when the master returned, he dealt first with his servants, okay? Later on, he's gonna deal with the rebellious citizens, but first he wanted to see how his faithful servants had been in his absence. All right, so the first one says, master, your mina earned 10 more minas. The first servant brings an amazing report, right? He did business with his master's mina and he had 10 more to show for it. That's a, a thousand percent return on investment. If you knew you were going to have a thousand percent return on investment, you'd be investing, right? And the second one has a, has a good report too. Master, your mina earned five more mina, a 500% return on investment. That's incredible. So we can speculate how they invested this mina. Obviously, it doesn't tell us in this parable, but they, they lived in an agrarian society. So they, they probably invested in livestock or, or in farming, something like that. Or they could have invested in the bank. And the bank would have been, it's not the bank like we know it, not like Bank of America. This is, this is the marketplace bank, which would be the lender's bench. It comes from the word bench, where you would go and you would lend money, and then you would receive it back with interest. Either way, the important thing is the master doesn't tell them exactly how he wants the mina invested. He empowers his servants and gives them freedom to use what he's given them in, in creative ways. You see that? He didn't say, I want you to take this mine and go invest it here or go do this with it, go do this with it. He says, put it to work. Here's, here's the resource, here's the blessing, put it to work. So if you're taking notes, we are empowered to walk out what the Lord has called us to do in creative and beautiful ways. We are empowered to walk out what the Lord has called us to do in creative and beautiful ways. Isn't that incredible? We could have a God that said, Okay, if you want to honor me, you must pray this prayer at exactly 10 a.m. every single day. You must dress like this. You must walk like this. You must talk like this. You must be exactly who I want you to be if you want to honor me. No, we serve the God of creativity. I mean, look around. Look at, look at creation. We serve a God of creativity and life and freedom and beauty. So that's why there's... there's Infinite genres of music that proclaim the same gospel. There's, there's contemporary worship, there's hip-hop, there's metal, there's country, there's jazz. There's all kinds of different genres of music that proclaim that same old ancient gospel. Or how in every generation, there is a new preacher who is, who, is, who is presenting the gospel in fresh and creative ways. Same gospel, but fresh and creative ways. Think of all the creative ways that, that, that you serve the Lord. When we opened up our podcast, when we have men's and women's ministries, these are creative ways that came out of nothing just because we serve the God of creativity. Also, let's note the humility in the servant's response. What is it? He says, Lord, your mina has earned 10 mina. He didn't attribute it to his skill. He didn't say, look what I did. Look how fancy I am. Look what I did. He says, your mina earned 10 mina. Lord, I used what you gave me and look what happened. Let's all think on this together. When you succeed at something, how quick are you to attribute it to the Lord blessing you? Is that your knee-jerk reaction? Lord, you did this. Or, or do you fall back on your own ability? He said, look what I did. I'm preaching to myself. If anything ever goes good, my knee-jerk is, of course, I'm awesome. <laughs> and this is why the Lord gives us wives to remind us that I'm not. 
So now the master rewards his servants, not just with words. He didn't just say, good job, now give me my money. Not just with words. He rewards them with cities. It's interesting. He rewards them with massive tracts of land. So is this reward proportionate to the service? So they earned a little bit of extra money. He says, good, now be over these massive amounts of territory. Is that proportionate? No, it's not proportionate. That's wildly unproportionate. If you're taking notes, the Lord rewards his servants not based on what they produced, but based on their faithfulness. The Lord rewards his servants not based on what they produced, but based on their faithfulness. Remember in Luke 16, he says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in little is dishonest in much. It's the Lord who brings the fruit. The Lord is the one that causes the increase. It's not our skill. It's not our intelligence. The Lord causes our service to be fruitful. All we're called to be is faithful. The Lord causes the return. All we're called to be is faithful. Did you leverage what I gave you for the gospel? Did you use everything that I gave you to see others know Christ? And Okay, God, then your reward will be great in heaven. Okay, so now we've seen the master has blessed and rewarded the faithful servants. They used what the master gave them and they saw their investment multiply. Now we transition to the third servant. His report won't be as good. Let's see how the master responds. And then again, the through line through this entire text keeps ringing in our ears, invest in the kingdom, the Lord is returning. Okay, let's go to our next section in verse 20, the master punishes. Verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. All right, this third servant didn't have a good report, did he? He didn't do so good. He did not obey his master's command to do business until I come. He merely kept the master's resources and did nothing with it. So I'm trying to picture this scene. The master calls all the servants in front of him, and the first one says, look, I made 10 mina. The second one says, look, I got five mina. And the third one says, look, I still got it. Same one you gave me. I didn't lose it. I kept it warm in my pocket. I'm like, you know what the master was asking you to do, right? He wasn't asking you to just hang on to it for him. He asked you to do business until you come. So the general consensus is, this is about the least concern he could have given to this, this, uh, this calling, right? If he wasn't planning on doing anything with it, he should have like buried it or put it in a lockbox, right? He put it in a handkerchief, probably on his desk. Like he might as well like thrown it out on the front porch or something like that. He showed no concern about this. But nevertheless, he gives his reasoning. He gives his reasoning for not investing. Here's what he says. He says, I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. That's his excuse for, for not investing what the, what the master gave him. So the term severe man here, it doesn't mean selfish. And it doesn't mean unfair. It means strict or having a high standard. It comes, it comes from the, the word austere, the Greek word osteros, which means exacting, high standards. Is that an accurate description of the nobleman? From what we can tell, I mean, we don't know this guy personally, but from what we can tell in this parable, is he strict? Does he seem strict? And Jesus is comparing himself to the nobleman. 
Is Jesus strict, high standards, exacting? Well, one verse earlier, this nobleman was handing out blessings like nobody's business, right? He's like, 10 cities for you, five cities for you. You get a car, you get a car. I don't think he's that strict. I don't think so. What's far more likely is this. The third servant did not know his master at all and was operating as such. The third servant did not know his master at all and was operating as such. If you're taking notes, when you have an incorrect view of God, it changes how you behave. When you have an incorrect view of God, it changes how you behave. So if you view God as a spiteful, angry, judgmental, callous, mean old God, you won't walk out of faith that's joyful, right? You won't walk out of faith that's full of life and full of love. Rather, you'll live a life of fear. And you'll feel like you always have to wear a mask because you won't know that you're forgiven in your sin. So when you have an incorrect view of God, it changes how you behave. All right, let's pick up in verse 22. He, the master, said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might've collected it with interest? All right, so the master, the master turns the servant's words back around on him. He does like this mental judo flip and takes his words and turns it back around on him. He says, okay, so if I'm a severe man and I take what I didn't earn and, and, and I reap what I didn't sow, why didn't you try to make me some money? Right? If you say that I'm, I'm only in this for money, why didn't you try to make me some money? He's saying your logic doesn't make any sense. If I'm only trying to make money from you, then why did you do nothing with your mina? I think this further illustrates the point that it wasn't about money. This wasn't like a pyramid scheme for the, the master. He wasn't trying to, to earn money. He was trying to reveal character in his servants. This, that was the whole point of this exercise, to reveal the character of his servants. So the ones who invested their mina wisely truly loved and trusted their master. The ones who invested their minas wisely truly loved and trusted their master. The one who did nothing with his mina, he didn't know his master at all. And he chose to walk in disobedience. So if you're taking notes, when you trust your Lord, you will be more willing to step out in faith. If you trust your Lord, you will be more willing to step out in faith. So if you trust your master, you'll be more willing to share the gospel with your coworkers. It's difficult, isn't it? It's uncomfortable. They probably just want to work. They don't want to hear about this, but I trust my master. If he's calling me to witness to you, then I trust my master. If you trust your master, you will be more willing to give to that ministry or give to that family in need. Y'all, giving generously is not easy. It is not easy to do. You say, I'm going to, the Lord's calling me to give to you. I don't know about my rent. I don't know about my mortgage, but I trust you, God. If you're calling me to do it, you will make it so. If my God called me to do it, then I cannot fail. When you trust your Lord, you'll be more willing to step out in faith. All right, in verse 24, and he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And I tell you that everyone who has more will be given. And to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. All right, when our master returns, our master returns, he will reward us according to our faithfulness. 
we will be rewarded with different levels of, of authority in his kingdom. So if you were unfaithful with what you were given in this life, if you were unfaithful with what you were given, why would you be given more, right? Whatever title, responsibility, or resource you have been given will be given to someone who is faithful. That's why he said to everyone who has more, or to, to everyone who has, more will be given to him. And to everyone who has not, even what he has will be taken away. One thing that's interesting to note, this unfaithful servant isn't slaughtered like the citizens later on. We haven't gotten there yet. Sorry, spoilers. He isn't, he isn't slaughtered like the citizens later on. He's not even kicked out of the kingdom. At least he doesn't say it here. I believe this is to represent there will be people in the family of God who did not use what the Lord gave them for very much in this life. Right? So positionally, they will be justified. They will be forgiven of their sin. But on that final day when they have to give an account, what will they say? What did you do with what I gave you? If you're taking notes, the Lord invites us to take part in investing in the kingdom. Why would you sit on your hands? The Lord invites us to take part in investing in the kingdom. Why would you sit on your hands? We've been called to an incredible adventure in this life. Not some mundane, boring faith. We've been called to an incredible adventure. We've been given purpose to, see, to serve and to preach and to invest and to build and grow. And when we do, the Lord multiplies our service. Do you see that? He multiplies it. Do you remember the thousand percent return that that one servant had? He multiplies our service. Why would we sit on our hands? We've been called to a great adventure. In verse 27, but as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay. So the servants all had to answer for their work. Like some of them had good reports. Some of them had bad reports. Either way, none of them were guilty of treason, right? But now the master deals with his enemies. They were the, they were the citizens from verse 14. They hated him and they said, we will not have this man reign over us. Remember, they were citizens under the, the Lord's rule, but they were not members of the kingdom. This is, this is difficult for us to process sometimes, right? With our modern sensibilities, it's difficult for us to process that there'll be people that we encounter every day who are nice people. They're successful people for us to beautiful people who hate the Lord and don't want him as king. That's difficult for us to process. They would desire that they would be the own kings of their life and that they wouldn't have to bow the knee to Jesus. And we know in Philippians 2 that one day at the name of Jesus, every, net, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The day is coming. The Bible tells us that ultimately one day they will get exactly what they want, which is eternal separation from him in a literal place called hell. If you're taking notes, if you love Jesus, his return will be a wonderful day. If you don't love Jesus, his return will be a horrible day. Jesus was telling these disciples this parable just to get us right in the, in the right mindset and remember the context. He's telling the disciples this parable knowing full well he was about to be in Jerusalem and he was about to be sacrificed for them. Think of the love that he has for his disciples in this moment. He knows their heart. He knows what they're desiring. When they looked down and saw Jerusalem, 
they saw their hopes and their dreams coming true. Finally, the kingdom will be established now. But when Jesus looked down and saw Jerusalem, he saw the suffering he was about to endure. So he tells them this parable. He tells them the parable of the nobleman and his people to remind them of their purpose while they are waiting. But unlike the nobleman, Jesus doesn't give them mere money. He gives them the gospel. He gives them what they really need. He gives them salvation from their sins, and he brings them from death to life. And then he gives them a purpose and a meaning while they wait. So Christ takes our punishment on the cross. Then he ascends in heaven, and he secures the kingdom at the right hand of the Father. And then he entrusts us to serve him. He entrusts us to serve him and serve his kingdom and see it flourish and see it grow. He has given you a particular calling in a particular place and a particular time. And we need to be faithful and we will see our efforts return a thousandfold. All we need to be is faithful. And on that glorious day when he returns, if we are found faithfully serving him, we will hear the sweetest words that will ever land on our ears. Well done, good, faithful servant. God, was I faithful? We will hear the, the greatest words that will ever land on our ears. Well done, good and faithful servant. Are you weary of this sin-torn world this morning? Are you tired of being in this sin-torn world? Oh, that we may be found faithfully serving him and leveraging everything we have for the kingdom. And what's our reward? It won't be something that fades away and is thrown on the garbage heap like money or like titles. Our reward will be eternity with Christ. Spending eternity loving and worshiping him and our brothers and sisters where there is no more pain, there is no more tears, there is no more shame, only us resounding together forever all into eternity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Invest in the kingdom. The Lord is returning. Invest in the kingdom. The Lord is returning. So what do we do while we wait? We don't know the day or the hour. What do we do while we wait? A couple points of application. Invest the talents the Lord has given you by serving the local church. Invest the talents the Lord has given you by serving the local church. There is nothing more heartbreaking. There is nothing sadder than seeing somebody who is so clearly blessed by the Lord. Blessed in gifts of administration, pour them in leadership and teaching, an organization, and they pour themselves out on a job. Pour themselves out on a job. When you know you were gifted to serve the local church, to serve the kingdom, to see it grow, why would you waste what the Lord has given you on a job that will be thrown on the garbage heap, that will be fodder at the day of the Lord? Invest what the Lord has given you in serving the local church. Second, invest financially. This is probably the most obvious application from our text, right? Invest what the Lord has given you financially because the Lord promises that it will be far more fruitful. We can see lives change. Invest, he makes it more fruitful. He produces the fruit so that we can see lives changed. We can see addictions broken. We can see marriages healed. We can see the gospel go out of these four walls and more people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Invest financially, invest gener generously because the Lord is returning. Yeah. And last, invest in evangelism. Invest in evangelism. Do you remember 
that at one point you were lost. At one point, you were serving your, your own master, you were serving yourself as king. And then someone loved you enough, someone cared about you enough, someone was courageous enough to come and present the gospel to you because they loved you and did not want to see you spend eternity separated from him. And it probably wasn't perfect, was it? It was probably awkward and weird and uncomfortable. And what did the Lord do? He used that and he made it fruitful. Look at you sitting in here. Obviously it was fruitful. He used their faithfulness and he made it grow by a thousand percent. Let's be faithful. Let's be obedient to the Lord. And no, it's not comfortable. No, it's not easy. But the Lord promises to make it fruitful. All we have to be is faithful. And why? Why do we do all this? Why are we investing? Because the Lord is returning. And on that final day, when we enter heaven's gates and we stand before the king and we hear, well done, good and faithful, none of our sacrifice, know that nothing's wasted. Not a single moment has been wasted. None of our sacrifice has been wasted. I'll end on this verse from one of my favorite worship songs. As we look forward to that glorious day and we continue to invest in the kingdom until the last day comes. When we arrive at eternity's shore where death is just a memory and tears are no more, we will enter in as the wedding bells ring. Your bride will come together and we'll sing. Let's pray. Lord, you are beautiful. Lord, you are beautiful. And you come leaping off the page in texts like this, God. Your heart for your people, your heart for your disciples, God, to give us what we really need. God, I pray this text doesn't land on deaf ears today, God. May we be about our master's work. May we not sit on our hands, God. There's an adventure you are calling us to, to serve your kingdom, to serve your kingdom faithfully, to see it multiply and see it grow until you return. May we all be found faithfully serving you on the day of your return. And may we all hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.